The guy has a cock sock on, so he can't accidentally slip in, or if he gets a little excited, juice all over the other actress. Radio Drome. I'm Josh Hadley. Thursday nights mean Radio Drome. Thursday nights also mean the Marquis de Suede. Yes, I'm here. And they also mean Cecil, the good bad flick himself. That is me, indeed. At least you're not like what like what happened to Flick from A Christmas Story. I mean, in real life, that would not be good at all. No. And then Did my... he actually get his tongue stuck. In some pretty dirty places when it's when he moved to hardcore gay porn, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the, I always make the joke when that's on TV, not the worst places Tongue will get stuck in the future. Speaking of that, Cecil, do the Adam and Eve promo. Well, speaking of sticking your tongue in dirty places, if you go to adamandeve.com and use the promo code DROME, uh, you'll get 50% off a single item, free shipping in the U.S., and three, oh, free, ugh, three free DVDs and a free mystery gift. Eventually you got it. Yes, I'm stumble-bumming my way through the whole thing this morning, this evening, today. Whatever, whenever you happen <laughs> to be listening to this, okay? We all know all about what our topic is tonight, about the things you don't know, uh, that the majority of people don't know about making movies. There are things that a lot of people don't know about making movies. I mean, we're we're big movie nerds. We we read all the behind the scenes. We we talk to all the people. I mean, Jowski, if you had to sum it up, do you think that your average movie viewer, that just the kind of person that just goes, let's go see that Iron Man movie, it looks cool. They don't know the comics or anything. Do you think they realize just how little Robert Downey Jr. is in that, just how much CGI is in it, and just how much of a mess actually making it is? No, they think every scene was filmed in order, and that's actually Robert Downey Jr. in the suit flying every time. Yeah, they, they have no concept of the fact that hundreds of people have been working months ahead of time before the filming has even begun, you know, just to get all of this stuff ready, paired, and then, you know, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of movies where the first scene that they shoot is the end of the movie. And it's it's just completely shot out of order. Different scenes are put here and there, which is why like they don't understand. Well, in this scene, uh, he had a red tie, but in the next scene, he had a blue tie. Those little things just unfortunately sneak through when you're doing a production as large as this that's not shot in order because it it does, it would not work if they shot it in order. Uh, I I disagree with that. We're we're going off of a Crack.com article, which I think it does sum it up pretty well, about five behind-the-scenes details that change how you see movies. We've all worked on movies. We've all worked in production at some point. So we know this article is pretty accurate, actually. Yeah, it doesn't change how I see movies. Well, no. So like I said, we, we are behind-the-scenes kind of guys. We already knew this. There are some movies that are shot in order. For instance, Night of the Living Dead 1990. Tom Savini had never shot a movie before. He'd only done episodes of Tales from the Dark Side. And he said he was not confident enough in his own skills to be able to not screw this up. 
So they just shot the entire movie in sequence. To him, it was easier to keep continuity. He doesn't have to remember, okay, today we're shooting Barbara Day 8 when she's got the ripped shirt. Now, tomorrow we're shooting Barbara Day 3, so she doesn't have the ripped shirt, but she still has the long hair, etc., etc., that it was just easier for him. Screw it. Just day one is the first shot. But that's the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, I'm talking more for movies, uh, you know, a lot of the larger movies where it's like, okay, well, we need to film it in such and such a location, but we can't get that location. You know, if, if we if we film it in order, we wouldn't be able to get that location. But, but that, lo- that location that... may appear throughout the movie. Right. You know, that location, instead of like having to fly back there every time they need to go there. You know, oh, yeah. Just film all those scenes at once. So that kind of thing. That's more or less. And smaller productions, stuff like that, where you can film it in order, then absolutely. Then, I mean, you know, you, you, sh- you should at least try to do it that way. And and sometimes it's due to the actors that maybe you've only got the actor. Maybe he only appears in scene one, scene 15 and scene 40, but you've only got them for three days. So you have to film all those out of order and just hope you remember all the continuity and that the script girl. And for whatever reason, it's usually a girl. That's not me being sexist. That's Hollywood itself. But the script girl better be keeping really, really tight notes. I know on Project Solitude, that movie I worked on, she was fucking meticulous on on hair placement and how the snow looked, and she was she did her job really really hardcore. If you don't manage to get all those scenes done with the actor and your Klaus Kinski time runs out, you end up with creature. That's why he turns into a zombie in that because well we can just put any actor in zombie makeup, so we don't have to have Kinski anymore. Too bad the actor thing kind of works against against you even on lower budget productions for instance sundown the vampire in retreat bruce campbell plays van helsing in that and his scenes were so spread apart the, with the locations that they needed he he was not needed every day but he was needed almost every other day so there wasn't enough time for him to fly back to la to his house but there was too much time for him to just be bored so he was just kind of stuck in the middle of the desert with no scenes to shoot that day, but he can't fly home. In Devil Times 5, they had Leif Garrett was in the film, and he had long hair. And they had wrapped, long story because they had to remove the director and whatnot, but they had the actors come back months later to shoot additional scenes. He had just gotten done doing Macon County Jail, in which he had a buzz cut. So now they had to like figure out a way for him to have long hair in the movie when all the other scenes that they shot he had he you know he had long hair so now he has short hair so they gave him a wig and they had this whole thing where he took his wig yeah, off wasn't it a subplot that he was a tr- uh... he uh, yeah he liked to uh, he liked to well he they kind of went in at it as like he was a very dedicated actor and you know if he if he would he would dress up like a woman if he if he wanted had to or whatever it was they never really went too far into it. They were just like, all right, we're just going to put him in a wig and have a scene with him in a dress and just kind of leave it at that. Like with Superman 2, where Richard Donner shot 80% of the movie, and then everybody was gone forever, and then they decided, well, we need to do the, the whole movie over again from scratch. And some of the actors, like Gene Hackman, didn't want to come back, so they had to edit around that or use a stand-in. And st- stand-ins mm-hmm. are, a, are a bad case because they're usually obvious. For instance, uh, God Told Me To, which we, which I did on and it came from Beyond Midnight. The main actor, anytime you can't see his face, it's a stand-in. 
because he was also on a Broadway play. And so his time was extremely limited. Cohen says right on the commentary, if you can't see his face, it's not him. But then you also have other ones where you have the actor does have enough time between scenes on a single movie where he can shoot two movies. For instance, going back to Sundown, The Vampire in Retreat, David Carradine as Dracula. He's only in maybe 15, 20 minutes of the total movie, but it's spread out throughout the movie. So what he would literally do is shoot that in the desert for a day or two. Then he would fly to L.A., shoot parts of the movie Crime Zone, then fly back, shoot Sundown, and then fly back and finish shooting Crime Zone. He was shooting every day of the week on two separate movies. People don't seem to realize that, yeah, Crime Zone and Sundown, even though they're not the same production company, they have no crew in common, they were shot essentially simultaneously. I, I think those kind of things are fun. I think that kind of stuff is, is cool. I mean, as long as uh, it doesn't end up negatively impacting the film. I mean, you, you know, if, if uh, he flew out and then got stuck or something and wasn't able to get back in time and it delayed, you know, the production. But uh, when it works out, yeah, it's, it's great. Oh, yeah, when it works out, it's great. I mean, heaven forbid if his flight was delayed, everything on both sets would have been ruined. So, which is kind of risky, but I have a feeling he probably didn't tell either movie he was doing the other movie at the same time. But that's, I don't know that, that's just speculation. Movies are so convoluted with the cut and paste job, sometimes I don't understand how an actor can do their job. I guess that shows that they're real actors. For instance, the movie sucks, but... Listen to the commentary for the 1998 Lost in Space. I have no clue how that movie was actually shot, considering things within the same action scene were shot months apart. <laughs> remember, remember when the robot's going crazy right before they get lost in space? Stephen Hopkins is like, okay, now the scene where the robot's shooting at him was shot at this point. The scene where he jumps out of the way was shot four weeks later. The scene where he lands was shot a month after that. I'm just going, how? How do you shoot a movie like this? How it's done. I think that might factor into partially why that movie is such a disaster. I think they maybe that's a case of where maybe they went a little too far with filming the stuff out of order. Maybe. Yeah, there's actually, you could tell, movies where, not that they lost track during the writing process, they lost track during the filming process, and so they didn't even know what movie they were making. Well, that's happened quite a few times. One yeah. person read the whole screenplay front to back. The others are like, I don't know what's going on. Okay. Well, I, I actually want to get into that later. That That's actually going to be coming up. Another thing is, like I pointed out with God Told Me To, if you can't see the actor's face, especially if they're a big-name actor, odds are it's not that actor. Now, there are some that do that. There, there, there are some, especially lower-budget productions, where they, they don't have a stand-in. For instance... Going into a bar, say you've got a character getting out of their truck, walking into a bar. The exterior might be shot in a different state than where the interior is. So you have the actor shooting the interior scenes, and you're at a wide shot from a distance. You don't actually need the actor there if you've got somebody that can double for them at a distance, right? Yeah, that's all second unit stuff most of the time. Usually. Okay, Cecil, explain to people what second unit is, because a lot of people won't understand what second unit is. Second unit is all those little bits and pieces that put the movie together. All the stuff that you don't even really realize is happening. The hand reaching out to open a doorknob, arm that is reaching out and opening a car door, or, you know, just the little odds and ends here. You know, they don't need 
the main director and they don't need the main cast to do, but they are essential scenes that are required in order for the movie to kind of come together and to make sense. And to me, those kind of insert shots tend to ruin really good pacing sometimes. I bring the movie up all the time, but go back and look at To Live and Die in L.A. Except when absolutely necessary, Friedkin refused to shoot insert shots. That he shot the entire movie, and except a few scenes where it was totally necessary, so you know what the character is picking up off the table or whatnot, it's all done in the two shots. It's all done in the wide angles which gives it a really different feel than a, than a normal movie that is just full of an edit every four or five seconds. I did second unit work on a film shoot once. It was boring. Well, yeah, because, well, first of all, the second unit director has next to no creativity because his job is to match what he's shooting, the lighting, the tone, the angle, with whatever the main director had already shot. So basically, he's running cleanup at that point. I was motivated about it when I took the job because I'm like, oh, Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese, they started doing second unit for, for Roger Corman. Well, it's all part of a learning experience. You know, it's yeah, stuff to it kind is. of get you in there. And it also goes to show that sometimes uh, making movies is boring. You know, it's not it's not always this big, exciting, grandiose event. Oh, yeah, J- just just try having an actor read a line for the fourth or fifth take. They're getting frustrated at that point. Look at look at like uh, Blade Runner. Blade Runner, we all know Ridley Scott was an absolute horror to work with. And you know, I love Blade Runner. But there was one point where the studio had to step in. And of course, Ridley has the, the side. You, you know, Cecil, we've said numerous times, we tend to side with the directors. Sometimes directors go crazy, right? Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying it is... 100% always side with the directors, but I mo- more than often not than not will side with the director simply because they are the ones with the creative vision and in the end their name is the one that is going to be under the product. They're the one that if but the But they're the one sucks, that's also but they are also spending someone else's money oh, to be absolute perfectionists. For instance, with like Blade Runner, you know how the movie is full of backlit fans? He shot 84 takes of a simple dialogue scene because the shadows were not landing on their faces right from the fan. And the studio had to step in and just go, all right, we're sick of this. You've got enough. Enough, Scott. Or Stanley Kubrick on the set of The Shining. Yeah. It's like you don't need 40 takes of the scene because, oh, I didn't like the way his hair fell on his face when he picked his head up on that shot. He You've got 39 like, other takes of that. He did something like 200 takes of Shelley Duvall for one scene. Drove her crazy. Yeah, and, and it, it's, it's a lot of people don't understand that not only wears down the crew, but absolutely can place a divide. Because th- there's something people don't realize. The director hires some of the crew. And some of them are just there to do the job. They're hired by the studio, or they work for the studio. You place a, you basically split a division right down your crew. Those who are loyal to you, and those who are loyal to, I want to be working here next week. That can make a very, very tense movie set. Yeah, and you got some of those that are like, well, I'm calling up the producer because this is bullshit. Yeah, and you've also got ones like James Cameron on Aliens where he was absolutely sabotaged by his assistant director. The assistant director thought he, the assistant director, should be directing this movie. 
So he kept intentionally screwing up the footage, hoping that Brandewine would think it was Cameron's fault, fire him, and then give the second unit or the assistant director the job. So when you're actively being undercut by the people you're trusting to get the film out, I'm surprised fisticuffs did not break out in a case like that. It happens occasionally. I mean, usually you you don't hear about it uh, until either years and years and years after the fact. Did Klaus Kinski try to literally escape a movie set once? <laughs> I'm pretty sure he did. I can't remember which movie it was. It was, a, it was a Herzog film, and Kinski actually was paying crew members to smuggle him off set so he could get the hell out of the town. Because he's well, like, I'm not doing this! I'm done! Christian Bale on the set of Terminator Salvation, his fight with that, that one crew member. I, I don't he, think a gaffer would have had the authority to go changing the stuff that they did at that time. Cinematographer would have. Well, that's another thing that we should get to soon, about the who can do what on a set. That, that That's on the list, yep. But, well, since you brought it up, yeah, the unions, to me, have destroyed movie making. Because, like, when I worked on Project Solitude, I was in the sound department. I saw one of the one of the gaffers dropped a light, and I went to go pick it up, and my sound guy pulled me back like, if you touch that, you're fired. You are not in the gaffer's union. You are not allowed to touch one of these lights. You are not allowed to string one of these lights. They can be dying, and you will get fired if you pick that light up off of them. They're like, no, you're in the sound department. They can't touch the boom pole. You can't touch their lights. It is. It's horrible. It's not even teamwork at that point. And, and what really happens is the unions are, are a racket on movies. What, what they try to do is they, they'll try and find non-union shoots and trick one person into joining the union. Then, then they have legal authority to shut down the entire thing for being a non-union shoot and trying to employ a union crew member. As much as I hate Eli Roth, that happened to him on Cabin Fever. They were shooting in some area where there was a big union presence, but they were a non-union shoot. One guy kept getting approached by a union guy saying, hey, hey, you need to join us, and he did. And then so they came at him with like a huge cease and desist. You can't film another day of this movie without hiring all of our union guys now because this guy signed on to the union, and he signed a contract with you, so you can't fire him for this, so you're now a union movie, even if you can't afford it. It's a, it's a racket. That's what it is. The unions are a racket. I have a story about that, but not for on-air. Well, first of all, you're completely wrong about uh, Eli Roth, and uh, secondly... No, Eli Roth sucks ass. He's the worst thing to happen to horror in the last 20 years. That's a debate for another time, but... Eli Roth is a piece of crap as a director. The worst thing to happen to horror in the past 20 years? No, that's Paranormal Activity 4. I haven't seen 4 yet, but uh, I'll have to get back to you on that one. But uh, no, Eli Roth is one of the best things to happen in horror in a long time. But again, like you said, that is a, a conversation and more than likely an argument for another day. But yeah, I mean, that that is absolutely ridiculous. The fact that they would screw somebody into having to hire union people. I mean, that it's just, that's not a way to do business. And it, it's just, it, it is a racket. It's it's wrong. They will screw up more things than they would fix. It's just, they, they don't give a crap about the film. They just care about getting their people employed and making their money. And that's just, it's wrong. It's so wrong. Hence my calling it a racket. Absolutely. Because of that splintering. Okay, there are so many bad movies that come out, right? 
Everyone. Yeah. And uh-huh. we've all done it as critics. All of us have done this. How did no one see that this was such a piece of crap? Then you go and work on a movie. You've got no way to know whether this is a piece of crap or not. Because first of all, unless you are the cinematographer, maybe a camera assistant, the director, or one of like you know the eight top people, you never see the full script. You get what are called sides, which are tiny little Reader's Digest dimensioned photocopies of the pages that are being done that day. That's all you ever see as crew are what's called the sides. Knowing that, you have no way to know whether this movie is going to turn out brilliant or not because you are seeing it as out of order as it's being shot. You can't put that together in your head. And sometimes you don't even see the sides. Sometimes you're told, just just do this. Well, I was in sound department, so I needed to know what characters were talking. So yeah. I always got sides because part of my job was making sure the right character was talking. And another thing, too, is when you're on set, you don't realize like how rinky-dink everything looks. Like uh, a, a, a big eye-opener for a lot of people was when they went to the Star Wars exhibit at the Smithsonian and you were looking at like all the old costumes and they were just flimsy and cheap and looked like garbage and it was duct taped and glued together. And then you see it in the movie and you're like, wow, you know, this looks amazing. But then you see it in reality and it just it just looks like a bunch of, you know, slapped together crap. But when you're on set and you see this, you're like, oh, my God, they're they're playing with flashlight parts and, and, and you know, old camera parts. And, and then it, this is going to be terrible. And then when the movie is put together and the effects are added and, you know, the, the color grading's done and then you're like, I was on this set. You know, you, you, it blows your mind. So, you know, it kind of goes both ways where you, you don't know if the movie is going to be good or bad when it's when it's being made. My friend Hank Carlson did the effects for Project Solitude. They didn't have a big enough budget to do all of the effects. I mean, the death scenes and that all look really good and authentic. But at one point, they needed to kill and gut a deer. They were running out of money at this point. So he he made what he could for the money that they gave him. And he was like, all right, I'm telling you right now, I'm telling the director, this will not look good in close-up. Have to keep this in the background. It will not pass muster. And the thing looked like a goddamn Christmas decoration on set. And they actually did use some nice soft focus to hide it. So even though I don't think Project Solitude is a good movie by any means, that doesn't look as fake as it did to me standing next to it. When I was in high school and going through college, I watched a lot of tapings of sitcoms. And Martha was asking me, like, how do they fit all these sets on that one thing? I'm like, well, those are all in the same room. You know, they're not every set faces the audience. And everything is so crammed together and small on one of those live TV sets. And in fact, one scene of the regular sets was actually under the bleachers for one show. Especially, now if it's something you can interact with, a guy in a, in a monster costume or a practical that's on set. But if you're dealing with stop motion, CGI, an optical, a matte painting, something like that, the actors have no idea usually what they're looking at. Have you ever seen that old black and white movie, The Giant Claw? Yeah, with the, the, the big bird. Yeah. The actors in that, when they're they're confronted with this thing, they're they're acting their asses off for being terrified. They never saw how goofy and stupid that looked till they went to the premiere. Then they were embarrassed. I'm screaming because that dopey looking thing is chasing me. Oh yeah, it's the same thing with like 
all of CGI, and one of the huge criticisms people have is that the actors aren't interacting with whatever is around them. They're interacting with tennis balls. Do you remember the TV series Space Rangers from the early 90s, the Pandeshum series? I've seen it. I, I haven't seen it in a long time. Oh, the, the, there was a creature in that called the Banshees. They were they were like space bats that you would encounter in hyperspace. And at one point, the pilot had one of them attacking the the uh, window of his spaceship, and he was supposed to be all terrified. It was actually a store-bought werewolf mask on a stick. That's what I'm <laughs> I'm pretending to be terrified of is a store-bought werewolf mask that a crew member is holding on a stick in front of me because the actual Banshee would be added in post. Avery Brooks ha- had this great quote back when he started Deep Space Nine about how you know he came up in the theater where everything is right there in front of you and he's like now I'm fighting monsters I can't even see against a green screen I don't even see it until it airs and sometimes the creature looks so goofy I feel stupid for the performance I gave or you know the reason that Jaws is so memorable for oh there's no shark until like the end that's just because Steven Spielberg didn't have a shark. The he damn didn't thing intend didn't that. Yeah, yeah, yeah the thing he was didn't, broken. He didn't intend for the movie to be like that. Yeah, it, usually when you are on set, you can't tell that this movie's gonna suck. And like I said, you can't even go, well, the script is bad because all you're getting are one or two pages at a time. You can't tell whether the script is bad from that. Yeah, and they're all out of order pages. Yeah, yeah, and and, and sometimes. Being on the set totally breaks even the illusion. Because like on Project Solitude, there was a scene where a woman gets killed by getting hit in the head with a rock and then a wolf eats her brains. Well, they had an actual wolf that had been raised in captivity since a little pup who was so sweet. She was just she was licking all the crew's faces and whatnot. And then her, her trainer would give a command and she'd go into wolf mode and then give another command and she'd just be almost like a sweet little puppy again. And the brains she was eating were peanut butter coated in jam. and you know me seeing that i can't see the scene in the final film and not go she was such a sweet little puppy and with the shooting the scenes out of order and not knowing if it's going to be a good movie you take the screenplay for the best movie you've ever seen throw all the pages up in the air and pick them up at random and you read that it's going to be some crap well and, and then you've also got the thing when it comes to a love scene Everyone's like, oh, my God, you know, this actor got to screw this actor on film. Oh, man, that must be so lucky. No, no, not at all. Oh, even on porn sets, it's it's horrible. I mean, Josh and I were swapping links of porn bloopers the other day. Those people are Some of those were horrifying, Jowski. Yeah, some of them were, but it's they it's not the erotic eroticism that you see at all. No, and especially if you're doing softcore where there's no penetration, usually the guy... We're talking hetero here. The guy has a cock sock on, so he can't accidentally slip in, or if he gets a little excited, juice all over the other actress. She usually, let's say she's relatively modest, she will demand a closed set. Now, the great thing about the nude scenes in Project Solitude were, me being the boom op, I'm required on set. I have to be there. So when they would clear the set of all but essential crew, I was essential crew. That's one of the great things about about being Booma. You're kind of needed in every scene, right? Well, the other thing that they've done now is they can CGI nudity onto clothed people. Machete. Yeah. yeah, with Jessica Alba. Lindsay Lohan. Oh, and Lindsay Lohan, yeah. They, no, they did that to Jessica Alba and Machete Kills. they kills. did that to Jessica Alba as well, yeah. She was wearing underpants uh, in the shower, and then they, like, 
CGI'd him out. Oh, I, f- I forgot about that. I, I knew about the Lindsay Lohan part. I did a, a short a while ago, and uh, it was a thing that has yet to be released. I don't know if it's ever going to come out. But basically, this girl, she was fairly attractive and had really big boobs. And this dude had, like, mind control powers. And he used his mind control to make her tits pop out, uh, kind of like zapped. No matter what we did, they were they were pulling. Uh, they, we had somebody standing behind her and would pull on her shirt, which would basically pop it open, and her boobs would flop out. It just it was one of those cases of where it got irritating because it wouldn't work and it wouldn't look right, and we had to keep resetting and doing it over and over again. And at first, it's like woohoo boobs, and then after like the the fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth take, you're like, Ugh. we're like it's it's two in the morning. You know, can we... I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore. It's just, it's, they're not that great. You'll, you'll notice the conspicuous edit in the movie where you think you see the main characters naked, but you don't. For yeah. instance, in the original Joe Dante Piranha, even though it was in her contract, she wouldn't do the nude scene, the, the main girl. So when she flashes the guard as a distraction, you'll notice that it's an insert shot, second unit, of just a tight shot of boobs where you can't see the face. See, that that was a lucky second unit director. At least he got to see some boobs. Or you want, you want to hear a funny one about nudity? Listen to Henry Rollins talk about having to film his nude scene in the in the film Morgan's Ferry. He was supposed to stand up out of, you know, it t- takes place in like 1900 or something, one of those old tin bathtubs. And he was supposed to stand up and go get a towel while the, the sheriff is coming at him. He was so embarrassed that he kept screwing it up to the point where he psyched himself up so much, he stood up like the Incredible Hulk and was just, yeah, look at it, look at it! And the crew's looking at him like, lost your mind? I, uh, showdown in Little Tokyo with Dolph Lundgren, Brandon Lee, and um, Tia Carrere, I had seen that movie on cable and loved it. And I still do, I think it's a, it's a fun movie. It is a very fun but, but there's the love scene between Tia Carrere and Dolph Lundgren. And for years, I thought that that was a Tia Carrere nude scene. But going back, you know, years and years later, I watch it again, and I'm like, oh, that's an insert shot. Um, it's not even like, the, the girl's skin color is not even the same. <laughs> well, even like Cafe Flesh back from 1980, you know, future screen queen Michelle Bauer is in that as Pia Snow. You see her eat pussy in it, fine. But you never actually see any penetration with her, even though her character gets penetrated many times, where you can see her face. She, she, had a, she had a body double for all the penetration scenes. So you think you saw Michelle Bauer getting crammed in the ass in that movie, but you didn't. Clever camera angles hit it. Or Friday the 13th Part 5, they had a director that was essentially a porn director on that, and... Their softcore sex scenes, he's screaming, oh, fucker, fucker, good, and it made everybody awkward. I can see that. Like, the actors hated when they had to have a nude scene or a sex scene because of that director just going all super porn mode on them. Well, even, even on porno sets, as weird as this sounds, the actors who are about to screw on film are not allowed to screw off camera because they don't want anything wasted. Or there was a... um porn blooper I saw where they bring the guy in and she stops. She's like, no, 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 no. This isn't the guy I'm having sex with. I haven't seen his, his tests. So I can't have sex with him. I have to have sex with the other guy that you told me I was going to be having sex with. Frankly, that's responsible, though. Yeah. 
this is just another day on the job. You know, it's not uh, it's not the enjoyment that uh, they're making it look like. And then you also have to go back to what we were saying earlier about like the sometimes hostile set environment. You know, usually those stories about actors being assholes, not really all that exaggerated sometimes, are they? No. Well, the one thing that always bugged me, the the Christian Bale thing on uh, Terminator Salvation, when he went off on the the one crew member who was being an idiot, the other like like he was high enough up the food chain in the movie where he was one of the few people who could lay into this guy for being an unprofessional idiot. I mean, after this happened, there were other actors who went on like talk shows and whatnot and were praising him. They were like, oh, my God. They're like, he said what we wanted to say, but we couldn't for, you know, fear of, of getting fired or fear of looking bad in the union. I have I take issue with that because, OK, Christian Bale considers himself, a you know, a very deep get into the character actor. And he said this guy who was in his line of sight, but not, you know, wrecking the shot or anything was distracting him then that's your fault as an actor for getting distracted. Go back to look at all those Italian movies from the 70s that were recorded with no sound because the cameras were so loud. Fred Williamson gives a story from Warriors of the Wasteland. You're delivering your dialogue. You're acting. There's people over here building a set. There's people over here ordering lunch. There's people over here getting costume tests. And you are able to stay in your in, in, in your character. So Christian Bale just... All to me, he proved was just how easily distracted he is when someone like Fred Williamson can concentrate and stay in character when all these other things are going on. A little movement off camera. I'm going to fuck you and I are fucking done. Or well, how spoiled he is to have luckily generally worked in closed sets. Well, no, it's not even that. Like, this wasn't a one-time incident. I mean, they said that this guy was constantly being unprofessional. He was constantly doing things behind the set. He was constantly moving around. He was constantly talking or doing something. They, you know, when they were filming. I mean, when when camera rolls speed, you shut up. You do not check your cell phone. You do not do all these other things that this guy was doing. You sit there and you pay attention to whatever's going on, unless it is your job to move the camera or do something. But this guy was constantly just being an idiot, and Christian Bale had finally had it and laid into him for it. And unfortunately, because that snippet of audio came out, it immediately painted him as the bad guy. And then even though the other actors and people in the crew came out to defend him, nobody heard that. They only heard the little, you know, you and me, we're done professionally. You know, they only heard the, uh, the you know, the couple minute snippet and automatically, you know, he's the spoiled idiot. But like going back to Project Solitude, Eric Roberts' work was on that movie. Now, we were all warned, Eric Roberts is going to treat you like crap. Just take it. Okay. We were told Eric Roberts is a jackass and he will treat you horribly. That could not have been further from the truth. Eric Roberts was a, to the crew, he was an absolute professional. Eric Roberts had this reputation, but that he didn't live up to it, except for we don't know what he said. Again, being sound, I'm in more, you know, of these closed sets than some of the other crew members. He's whispered something to his, his, his makeup girl. She just threw her, her makeup kit down, started crying and ran away. And he and the director had to go and try and talk her back or not sue or whatever. That was the only time I saw him act like an asshole to anyone on the crew of that movie. Well, at least he just whispered it to her. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what he said to her, but she he just he didn't like her for whatever reason. For whatever reason, he was giving her a hard time the whole time. His makeup girl, 
and he treated everyone else great. I mean, he, he would just come over and start talking to you between setups and we'd start talking about, I, I, Rude Awakening had been on TV recently. So I, I t- started talking to him about how I just saw that again. And he starts talking about how him and Cheech always get together and then telling stories from behind the set. That kind of stuff, I don't know if that is the norm or the exception. Was that the, the set that Eric Roberts bitched about? If I'd known it was going to be this cold, I'd ask for more money. Yeah. Okay. The movie is 95% exteriors, shot in Wisconsin at the end of December in what turned out to be the coldest winter in Wisconsin's history. It was very, very cold. Even some of the, sometimes I still run into other crew members, the lo, some of the local guys on other projects. And, and if we bitch about the cold, we're like, yeah, but it's not solitude cold. Nothing will ever be solitude cold again. You get these horror stories. And then when you meet some of these people, I mean, m- maybe they would treat the public different. But like, I, I spent three hours in the basement of a hospital just talking to Vanessa Branch, you know, the Orbit's gum lady on the set of Feed the Fish where I was just a PA. She could not have been cooler. She could not have been more nice. She was she was just goofing around with the crew like she was one of us. I don't know if that's the exception or the norm, though. I would like to think that's the norm for movies, though. I think probably it's it's more common that, uh, you know, because you don't hear... I mean, you hear the occasional horror story. Like, I, I've heard so many stories about how difficult James Cameron is to work with. But, I mean, he does get results. But when he's on set, he's just a monster. But, I mean, if if it was the norm, you would probably hear more stories about how this guy was a jerk or this guy was an idiot. But, you know, it's kind of the occasional, you know, oh, God, I had to work with blah, blah, blah. And he was incredibly difficult or, uh, you know, he just was a complete beast to the cast and crew. But so I, I think that it's probably more common that the director and the and the crew and cast and whatnot are just kind of get along, you know? I mean, and, and I, sometimes the famous people go out of their way. that th- They'll actually use something to try and strike up a conversation with you for some reason. For instance, on Feed the Fish, Barry Corbin plays Tony Shalhoub's dad. You know, Barry Corbin from War Games and Northern Exposure and all that. And I was wearing a Twilight Zone t-shirt one day. And, you know, he's got that thick southern drawl. He just goes, Twilight Zone. I did one of those. And he just starts talking to us about the Twilight Zone episode he made with Steve Rousback. And it's like, just because I happened to be wearing a Twilight Zone t-shirt on set that day, I got this cool story out of Barry Corbin. That, to me, is really awesome. Well, it's because the um, the horror stories, those are easier for people to repeat, and those are more scandalous, and those are the ones that the news outlets will jump on. The news outlets are never going to jump on a Oh, so-and-so's a nice guy. Just how little sometimes what you think a certain job actually entails. For instance, the director. Yes, the director is responsible for the movie. Probably seven out of ten times, the person who's deciding the lighting, the camera angles, the camera movement, is the cinematographer. The director just signs off on that. He'll be like, yeah, yeah, I like that, or no, 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 I don't like that. You'd be surprised how many times the cinematographer is actually armchair directing the movie and the director is just saying yes or no to those decisions. No, no, I totally agree. That's that's how it is. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's why uh, you always hear, you know, a lot of the larger directors 
they'll say like, you know, the cinematographer is like their right hand man. And if you look and see some of the guys that have been in the industry for a really long time and you go and you look, you're like, hey, he's done 30 movies with this guy. And they all have a very distinct look. It's because they, they work well off of each other. You know, he points out the shots and it's like, yes, you know, and they kind of they kind of go with that. So absolutely. But I think a lot of people think the director is the one, okay, now I want the camera to do this sweeping move, and then I want the lighting to hit his face. And the cinematographer is usually the one going, all right, let's do this. Is this all right? Yeah, go with it. And th there's that old joke that goes around Hollywood that the director is more of the wrangler because the one thing that cinematographers are not good at is maximizing time. Th there, there's the joke that's gone around forever. Why aren't cinematographers crack addicts? Because it would take them three hours to light it. <laughs> Oh, that's a good one. That is a good one. Neither of you have heard that one? I had never heard that one before. Yeah, because the cinematographers are always, well, I want a little more light on this. Can we get a 10K to add this shadow? And the director's just like, shoot the fucking thing already! Remember Scotty on Star Trek? Uh, when, he was on, when he was talking to Jordy on Next Generation, he was like, you don't tell him how long it'll actually take you, then you won't seem like a miracle worker. <laughs> you have to work like a miracle worker, son. Yeah. It's the exact opposite with a cinematographer. If you want it, if you want the next setup done in ten minutes, you tell them that they've got five, because they're going to take ten. They're always going to take double what you give them, so you use that against them, and it oh. it, it tends to get more efficient work out of a cinematographer. And then there is the unsung hero or villain of the movie industry, and that is the editor. You talk to any director that came up in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, and they will all say this, the editor saved the movie. Because when you're on set, especially shooting out of order, you can only guess how this is going to cut together. To me, like Project Solitude and Feed the Fish both had the editor there on set, telling the director, like, that's not going to cut together properly, or whatnot. But, but on a large production, the editor is not there. So but the editor can either save or destroy what was an otherwise good or horrendous movie. I've seen movies where the director's like, yeah, I shot this like crap, and the editor completely saved my ass. And then you see other ones where like the editor completely screwed this movie up, and the, the studio went with their cut, and my name's stuck on it. Editors are absolutely uh, integral to the film. I mean, if you've got a garbage editor then you're most likely going to have a garbage film. It's not just slap the, the uh, everything that got shot and just put it up there. I mean, editors have to make the hard decisions that a lot of times the director will uh, you know combat them on. This scene cost $10 million to shoot, and the editor, like, it wrecks the flow. It's gone. You know, they have to, you know, take certain parts of the film and throw them out, you know, construct the film in a way that it actually works. Because there are a lot of scenes that maybe they were expensive or maybe they had 50 takes to get it right and then put it in film and it does not work. And a lot of times the director will kind of say, you know, will we'll either if it's a good director, they'll recognize that the editor is doing his job and is taking this part out of the movie for a reason, and consequently it makes the movie better, but then you have other ones that have an ego, and they, no, and they force the scene into the movie, and then it's like, wait, this movie was going along fine, but now this, you know, scene or scenes one of, one of my favorite, One of my favorite targets, and even the one, of the, the one movie of this guy's that Brad hated, 
was death proof with Tarantino. The entire missing reel was put back in because, because, quoting Tarantino, it was just too good to not be seen. I was working as an editor for this one film once, and unfortunately the director was also the star of the film, so there was so much ego that I had to work against, and it was hell. I was proud of the work I did, and then he goes back and re-edits it completely and puts in horrible crap and left my name on it. But see, that tends to go both ways, because when a movie is a disaster, say the editor did completely wreck the film, and in some cases when the director, usually years later, gets a director's cut, you can go, okay, this was not the director's fault. Or sometimes you can go, yeah, the director completely screwed this up and the editor did everything they could to save it, but the director tends to be the one that gets the blame, unless they go to the old standby bad script. Two movies that the studio screwed up and that the director, well, in one case, the director was able to finish uh, to finish it and fix it. The other case, that's still up in the air. Blair Witch Project 2, where they took it away from the director and edited the film out of order and just made it not as good a film as it should have been had the film played in the correct order. You know, they're still trying to get that done. And the other one is The Crow City of Angels. The theatrical cut was taken away from the director. And the theatrical cut's a disaster. And the theatrical cut is a complete disaster. And the director bought it back from the studio and then released his cut on DVD, which is a much, much better film. Director Albert Pune has been doing that. He's been re-editing Cyborg and Radioactive Dreams and all all of his movies because you know, and in a lot of cases, when it does does come down to that blame game of, well, it's Albert Pune's fault. He said outright when our friend Fred Fritz interviewed him, he never once, on the dozens and dozens of films that he's directed, has had a hand in the editing. He would turn the film, he would turn all the film cans in, and then they'd be like, okay, bye, and then the studio would take it from there. So he gets blamed for how bad some of these movies turn out. When he never even saw the fi- the director never sees the final edit until the premiere. That's sad, isn't it? That is sad, especially so, somebody like Pune. He's yeah, Albert Pune. So what he's been doing is he's been re-editing the movies from the raw, but unfortunately, in a lot of cases, they can't find the original footage. So he's going off VHS dupes of the film. So his director's cuts tend to be just audio video quality. They look like bootlegs. And so I don't know if that really sells your point, does it? That my version would have been better when it looks and sounds worse, even though the edit is a better edit. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, you just have to look at it from uh, from the different perspective, which unfortunately the general public isn't going to bother. Like the, the general public uh, is going to watch a movie and it's bad and that's it. They're not going to like look into, you know, oh, well, the editor screwed it up and the director's trying to fix it. No, they're going to watch it once and they're going to be like, this movie sucked. Never bother with it again. Because they're not going to see it that way because they're just going to be looking at, oh, it's going to be better now. Then why does it look and sound bad? They're not going to really realize that maybe the story flows differently or something like that. Yeah, someone like Pune is a director that has just been screwed over his whole career. So. I don't know, I see a lot of people call him a terrible director, but since we've never actually, until until recently, since we never, when we were growing up, got to see his cut of the movie, can we really blame him for that? I I do not call him a terrible director, because 
Nemesis and Dollman are terrific films. I hated the Nemesis movie. If nothing uh, else, okay, okay, first, okay, maybe it's a maybe it's a nitpick of mine, okay. but he does not seem to understand the difference between what a cyborg and an android is. He keeps calling the complete robot a cyborg, but then the people with robot parts, he keeps calling androids in that series. That drives me up the goddamn wall, Cecil. It's it is nitpicky, and I will give you that that he's wrong. You know that that you know uh, Android so is. Ro- it is it is really nitpick, wrong. But it's something that could have been fixed by a dictionary search. Well, you know, I but uh, but you've got Olivier Gruner who is awesome in the film. It's got some amazing action set pieces. Tim Thomerson. Um, Tim Thomerson. Oh, it's it's just it's such an entertaining movie. And, uh, I mean, that is such a minor thing that, I mean, yes, it is technically wrong, but it's, it doesn't detract from how freaking awesome the movie is. Alex, what are your final thoughts on what people do not understand about movies? I mean, we were a little bit rambling. We didn't have a whole lot of cohesive narrative, but it's kind of hard to do that with this particular topic. We're just kind of pointing out some of the things that your general public forgets about a movie. Like like you pointed out in the beginning, that's Robert Downey Jr. in the Iron Man costume the entire time. No, basically, if you can't see his face, Jr.'s in his trailer probably getting blown and snorting cocaine out of a prostitute's asshole that he just fucked. Anyway, no, there is a lot of people involved. Just look at the end credits for any recent movie. How long do those go on? How many names do you see? Alien 3's credits are nine minutes long. Yeah, so... When you see a movie that's bad, it's easy to blame the director because their name is most prominently on it. But really, it could be the fault of any one of those hundreds of names in the credits. That thing that you didn't like about a movie, it probably was that guy that's halfway through. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with Alex. It's like people don't look – they don't bother to look further into maybe what happened with the movie. And they don't care. They're just like – Oh, well, I saw the movie and it sucked, and end of story. When sometimes there's any number of things that could have gone wrong. The producer blew half of the budget at the racetrack, and so they had to cut out 90% of their special effects shots. You know, uh, somebody lost film reels. There's that famous story from Jason X. Remember when KM14 and and Uber Jason were supposed to have a zero-gravity fight? Mm -hmm. And they're like, we can't afford it. The producer just came up, crossed out zero gravity in the script, and I that said, was just, yeah. There you no, go. It's no, it now was just a fight. There, mm-hmm. you're back under budget. Or, or in the case of of Devil Times Five, the producer was arguing with the director, and the director just started it's ripping true. pages out of the screenplay and just like, oh, we're not going to film this now. We're not going to film this now. Corman and just... did that on Galaxy of Terror as well. When mm-hmm. Corman was when Galaxy of Terror was running over, Corman would just randomly rip pages out of the script. And then, who's blamed for the movie being incoherent? Bruce Clark. Yeah, it's it's just uh, the, any number of things because you have you have a, a job that is basically being put together by any number of people, usually a large quantity of people. It all kind of comes down to it's a team effort, and sometimes for whatever reason, it just it doesn't work. And then there are times where something looks like it's going to be an absolute piece of garbage, and somehow magically it comes together and it's amazing. So uh, it, it, there are so many things that people don't understand about, you know, what goes into a film. And that's why I kind of get irritated when there are movies that come out. They, they'll be technically proficient 
and they'll you know they'll have really amazing shots but maybe the acting is bad or the pacing is off or something and just to have somebody come out and just say that sucks is is just infuriating and it's short-sighted except in the case of man of steel oh shut up you so where can we find shut up you you can find Shut Up You at goodbadflix.com as well as geekjuicemedia.com. What about you, Jowski? You can find me at geekjuicemedia.com. You can find me at the same geekjuicemedia.com as well as 1201beyond.com, and you can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Have a good night, guys.
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.